Hello. Um, before I do anything, uh, let's pray. God, there are scary things in the world. Be with us. Bring peace, bring calm, bring wholeness, and bring life. Stop death, stop violence, stop anger. Those things are anti-Christ. You end them, please. Be in this world. Amen. Well, yeah. <laughs> Good morning, and welcome to One Life Community Church. Uh, if you looked in the bulletin, and then you look up here, you can tell that I'm not rich. <laughs> Despite what the bulletin tells you, it's a liar. Don't listen to it this morning. Um, I'm the worship and arts director here, and you've heard it already, uh, I think. I was paying attention to my children, but I hope you heard it already. Uh, Whether you're here in the room with us or whether you're joining via live stream or later on in the podcast, it is a delight and a privilege to be here with you this morning in this role and in this capacity. Uh, For the past five weeks through the season of Advent and into the first week of Christmastide, the season that we're in now, we've been in this series that we called When God Shows Up. And that series fell almost entirely during the season of Advent. And so we started it off talking about how the word Advent means the arrival or the coming or the appearance. The arrival or coming and appearance of God in the person of Jesus. So in this series, we talked about who shows up. Hint, it's Jesus. Spoilers. Like, (laughs) so we're all on the same page. Why God shows up. How God shows up. And when God shows up. And then on Christmas Eve, we celebrated that Jesus was born, that God showed up. And then last week, Rich talked about what happens after God shows up. And what we talked about primarily is that when God shows up, everything changes, including us. And so this week, we're in the second Sunday of Christmastide, which is the season uh, following, Christmastide is the season that follows Advent, uh, and this is the Sunday of Epiphany. This is sort of the, the, uh, the day in the calendar where the church celebrates the incarnation of Jesus as God, or the incarnation of God as Jesus, other way. Uh, the Western church, so like the Roman Catholic church and any Protestant churches, uh, including us, that participate in the church calendar, remember this as the day that the Magi come to see Jesus and recognize him as God and King. Um, and let's read that passage real quick so it's fresh in our minds. Uh, it's Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It'll be on the screens, right, or you can look it up in your Bible and follow along. And so here we go. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where's the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is, shepherd to my people, who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When, they'd also, when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. So that's the story in the Gospels that the Western Church is celebrating. And then Eastern Churches, so really anyone following the Eastern Orthodox calendar, celebrates Epiphany as the day that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. And a dove lands on his head, and a voice from heaven says, This is my son who I love. In him I'm well pleased. And all of this is to say, basically, Epiphany is the celebration of Jesus being revealed as God. Rich last week connected this idea of Jesus as God by looking at Hebrews chapter 1, which calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And how John 1 talks about the word of God, Jesus, that became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Epiphany, this day that we celebrate today, the day that marks the end of the celebration of Christmas, is the celebration and recognition of Jesus as the God and King who has come to be with us. And so what does that mean? We have all these ideas of what kings are, and we talked about this at the beginning of the Advent series, and asked what we, like we asked everybody, what do we think of when we think of kings? And most of the answers were about exercising the king's power, requiring submission, being in charge, dominating, even possibly oppressing. But all the answers, with the exception of one, focused on the king's authority and power and position. And the one was that uh, the king cares for his people. So all that's about the king's power and position. But Jesus comes as a baby. And yeah, the, focus, the story focuses on him being a king and a god, but he's still a baby. God was a child who had to learn how to walk and talk. And he fell down and skinned his knees. And he peed his pants when he got too busy to remember to go to the bathroom. He had to learn how the world worked, about how to treat people kindly and how to regulate his emotions and how to soothe himself when he got upset. Can you imagine God having to learn these things? That's God, that's a king. He's the one that when he was born, the regional king who was like a puppet governor, ordered all the male kids under two to be killed. Jesus was born under an emperor who claimed he was God to an unmarried couple who were part of an oppressed minority in a backwater desert. He became a refugee, homeless, to young parents in a foreign land where they didn't speak the language or know anyone or have any place to sleep or any work to do. This is the one who the Gospels say is God. And so what does that mean? In light of the cruel men who fancy themselves kings and wield power like a sledgehammer, what does it mean that a baby is coronated? And what does it mean that the baby is God? Who has to grow and learn and become that's who the Gospels declare the baby is king. We talk a lot in the When God, we talked a lot in the When God Shows Up series about what it means in terms of like flipping things upside down, Jesus redefining paradigms of power and who God is for, and so on and so forth. And that's all great and good. And so, how do we fit into this? What does it mean that God is a baby king? What does Jesus in this role in the kingdom of God look like? I want to take a bit of a hard left turn uh, that hopefully eliminates some of these questions more. And that left turn is this. Let's talk about interpretation. Interpretation, how we internalize and process what we encounter. In this case, the stories in the Bible. Uh, it's a process that all of us engage with every time we interact with anything. A conversation, someone's actions, our own actions, an email, a song, a passage of scripture. Interpretation is something that we all do. And this is true 
for when we read the Bible. Every time we read the Bible, we're interpreting a translation, which is itself an interpretation by translators and tradition. It's impossible to just read the Bible and do what it says. That in itself is an act of interpretation. And sometimes when we're interpreting an interpretation, there are things that are said or assumed or remembered that have been interpreted in ways that are, almost said interpreted, in ways that have somewhat diverged from the original source material. A simple example of this is the ways that Jesus has been visualized throughout history. Every culture of Christians has interpreted Jesus in a way that connects with them. And the early on, Jesus looked like the icons that we have up in the back corner, which we actually only have one of right now. Uh, but usually we have an icon in the corner, and then there's one on that little table over there, and the ones on the table change with the seasons. But he looked like that, and then uh, throughout the, the centuries, he became gradually whiter and more European. Uh, even at one point, looking like Thor with a sword. I'm just kidding, that's actually Thor with a sword. <laughs> um, and then in Latin America and Africa, Jesus has looked decidedly darker skinned and a whole lot more like what he actually looked like than many, what many of us are accustomed to seeing. And the point is we interpret based on many things, social and theological and geographical location, education, culture, and so on and so forth. And why bring this up? Because how we interpret changes what we read and how we understand. And it also helps set up my point. We've interpreted the setting of Jesus' birth in a way that isn't quite accurate to what it's like. Jesus was not born in a stable. That image is much more rooted in sort of how the myth has evolved in our culture over the centuries. And when I say myth, just sort of like the, the story with all of its elements. Uh, but it's how the myth has evolved over the centuries, but it's actually rather inaccurate to the story in the Bible to say that he was born in a stable. Um, and that image speaks to something that is profoundly different to what the source material for the Bible actually says. So where was Jesus born? The Gospel of Luke says that when Jesus was born, Mary placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. And so we have this image that this is all taking place kind of in a barn or a stable or out in the back behind a hotel completely full to capacity. Among the animals stashed away from all the people, God is born alone, away from all the people neglected and forgotten. But a closer reading of the story reveals something rather different. So the Greek word for an inner hotel, in or hotel, is the word pandokeion. We're going to say that's how you pronounce it. Meaning a business like a hotel or a motel nowadays. Um, but Luke uses a different word when he says there's no room in the inn. He uses this word kataluma, which means more like a private guest house, possibly probably more similar to like an Airbnb or couch surfing or crashing on a friend's couch or something like that. You see, hospitality was a central aspect of what it means to be a good Palestinian Jew at the time, and it still plays an enormous role in many Middle Eastern cultures. You took care of your guests because it reflected on you as a person. So whoever Mary and Joseph went to for lodging, which may have even been a relative, they made it work. In a packed house, they found a place for Mary and Joseph to sleep, the main room of the house. They let them crash on the couch because their guest room was full. And it's here that Jesus was born, in the living room of a house so full of guests that the guest rooms were all full. And then once Mary gave, Jesus, gave birth to Jesus, she wrapped him up and put him in a soft, warm place, the manger. You see, in that time, a family's animals were kept inside at night in a lowered section of the room, and a manger was placed on an elevated platform that made it kind of level with the main floor. 
so the animals could just kind of go over and get a snack in the middle of the night if they needed it. And so Mary, when she has Jesus, she puts him in the food trough because it was there, because it's what was there. It was warm and it was safe. And why is this important? Why did pick the story of Jesus' birth? Because this affects how we understand the story. In the first century, there are very specific places where God is expected to show up. God pretty much showed up at the temple. It was the thinnest of thin spaces where heaven and earth came the closest, and it was where God lived. This is why it's so devastating to their cultural psyche every time the temple is destroyed. Um, the temple existed in a world run by a Caesar who thought he was God. And he filled the empire with statues of himself to be worshipped. And then the Greco-Roman world is filled with a pantheon of religious temples as well, almost treating them as uh, a drive-through spiritual experiences, each vying for your attention and your money. And these were very unique, specific places that people thought God showed up. And as much as we like to think that we're beyond that kind of thing, we have our own ideas and boxes where God shows up in churches and cathedrals, during worship, uh, when we listen to Christian music, during supernatural or charismatic moments, when we see beautiful mountains, views, or oceans, or whatever. As much as we talk of Jesus leveling the playing field or how our views of church and whatnot can take a backseat to our personal relationship of Jesus, with Jesus, the ways we practice our faith tend to indicate that we all believe there are certain ways and only certain ways that God shows up and that God can't possibly show up outside of those ways. In a world full of monuments to Caesar, in a world full of temples to every God that you can imagine, including the God of the Bible, in a world where di or, uh, Divine encounters are expected to be profoundly unique and definitively supernatural. There's no reason to think anything remotely significant would happen in a normal person's house where people eat and sleep and hang out and make babies and have babies and feed animals and where the animals sleep and where clothes are made and cleaned and where the normal things of life happen. There's nothing sacred about the home in their day. In the everyday, God doesn't show up among the mundane, the boring, the usual, regular things that we do with our hands and bodies, right? And then when God does, it's usually to take us away from those things, right? And yet, that's exactly where Jesus is born, right among those things. The day-to-day, -day, the here and now, the mundane, the quotidian, among the animals and the dirty dishes and the kids' toys all over the house, and the commute to work and the making dinner, that's where God shows up. Not in a spectacularly supernatural way, but in the most normal human way possible, in the blood and groans and pain and power of a, a peasant woman giving birth. Jesus' birth as a human is God's yes to all creation. It's God's blessing to the entire world, and it makes the whole world God's temple. The whole world is sacred. The whole world is a temple, especially the least exciting places. In Jesus, God makes God's home in all the normal, messy, unclean, impure, marginalized places. The whole world is blessed by God. Everything is sacred. All of creation cries out for God because God has named all of creation very good, including you and including me, including the people we love and including the people that we hate. It is all a temple, and we all bear God's image. And it all happens because of Mary. And I say this knowing full well that Ben uh, talked about her a couple weeks ago, but Mary often gets overlooked in the church outside of Advent in the Christmas season. 
this is partly because, at least in like Protestant traditions, um, this is part of like our faith stream that we've come out of, uh, there's a significant concern with keeping Jesus' role as pure as possible, and the reformers weren't happy with the level to which Mary had been elevated. This is a very long and complex story, so that's about as concise as I'm going to make it. Um, but that's not all. Mary gets neglected because our faith tradition and the Bible are significantly patriarchal. I place a ton more emphasis on the men in the stories than the women. And whether we reduce her to a side character out of a fear of being too Catholic or taking too much emphasis away from Jesus, or whether it's because we keep acting out of the sin of sexism that says the women are less important than men in these stories and can only act in submission, submissive or receiving roles, we set Mary aside. And we do this at the detriment of some extraordinarily rich insight into what it means to follow God. Because Mary is not about submission and obedience. That is not the Mary of the scriptures. Instead, Mary tells us precisely what it means to follow Jesus. Mary is the paradigm, the prime example of what it looks like to follow God for both men and women. You want to know what it looks like to follow God? It is not submission and obedience. I don't think those are the point. And honestly, I think those are just ways that we try to get out of actually trusting and believing in our nature as image bearers of God. Mary didn't just submit to God's will. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it. She doesn't passively receive God's hand in being Jesus' mother. Instead, this is what Mary does. Mary bears and births God into the world. She actively participates and is the way that God comes into the world. She's there at the beginning. She's the first face that Jesus sees in this world. She's there with him at his death. She's one of the first people to witness the empty tomb and his resurrection, and then she brought the news to the men who were too scared to leave their house. She's there at Pentecost, speaking in tongues and prophesying. She's transformed by Jesus, and in turn, she transforms everyone around her. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It is co-creating, joining in, and participating. Mary is the centerpiece of the Christmas narrative. Yeah, it's Jesus' story, and we can't forget that, but Jesus doesn't exist as a human without her. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, yeah, Joseph is sort of the driving, the driving character. Like, he's the one that, that the story sets up as, like, the one that's taking everybody along with him. But Mary is the centerpiece. It all happens because of her. She's the anchor. She's the axis on which the whole story turns. In Matthew, there's only one time where Mary is the recipient of anything. There's only one passive verb, and the only time something happens to her. Other than that, she's the it's a, when she bore Jesus. Other than that, she's the primary actor. Every time she shows up, she is Jesus' mother. She cares for her family. She does the work of mothering. She nurses and changes and feeds and snuggles and carries the baby in her body and sings to Jesus all while Herod is planning to kill him. She does the quotidian what Kathleen Norris calls the women's work, or the sacred mundane. Luke talks about her in all those senses, as well as her role as the prophet and the evangelist. She sings the first song in Luke, a response to Elizabeth, telling her how Elizabeth's own baby leapt for joy when Mary came near. Mary busts out in song, speaking truth about God, prophesying, in a song that's come to be known as the Magnificat. Let's read it. It's Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
His mercy is for those who fear, uh, for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. That is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Luke doesn't stop there. Mary is in the beginning of the book of Acts. At Pentecost, she receives the Spirit and prophesies along with the men. Is this someone who should be reduced to a side character that we only trot out at Christmas? No, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Mary hears God's desire and consents to it. She says yes. Kind of on the side, but as I was writing this, I was wondering, like, what would have happened if Mary said no? Like, it's a bit of a side tangent, but it's an interesting thing to ponder. Like, would God have respected her no and moved on? But she didn't say no. She said yes, even though there were risks and things that were all out of order. The timing of her pregnancy is off. She's unmarried and young. And that carries all sorts of problems. Uh, but the reality is God chooses Mary and comes to her and she consents. She says yes in knowing, the full well, knowing full well the consequences and blessings of her yes. She is not a passive recipient, but rather a bold participant, claiming her voice in the process by saying, yes, this is going to happen and I'm going to make it happen. Mary brings God into the world when she birthed Jesus. She carried God in her body. She birthed God in the most raw human way possible. She raises God. She helped Jesus learn to sit up, to eat solid food and to walk and talk and to share and be kind with his friends. She hugged him when he was scared or sad. She helped Jesus learn his ABCs and that two plus two equals four. She was there as he learned his Torah, his Bible. And as he worked with Joseph as a carpenter, she waved goodbye to him as he left to go begin his ministry. As she bore witness to the presence and the work of God in the person of Jesus, and she proclaims and participates that good work the whole way. This is what epiphany is. It's bearing witness to Jesus as God. The story we read at the beginning, the one that's traditionally used in the celebration of Epiphany, gives the spot to the Magi. That's, that's like they're the ones who are witnessing Jesus. Uh, and there's something remarkable about priests from another religion seeing symbols that fit within their religious traditions and it leads them to Jesus. But they're minor characters. Instead, it's Mary who bears witness the most. She did it the whole way. She bore witness by seeing Jesus do his work and bore witness and witness by participating in that work with him. So what does that say to us? How do we follow that example? How do we bear witness and witness to Jesus in the world? God coming in Jesus wasn't asking us, wasn't God asking us to behave ourselves and obey what God wants us to do. God coming in Jesus was God saying, work with me, be with me, be part of what I'm undoing and do it in the very way that I made you. Following Mary's example of following God is not about bowing down to a king and obeying in spite of ourselves. Following Mary's example is following God, uh, following God is about living fully into ourselves, learning how to be in the world in ways that bring life, that grow goodness and wholeness. Following Mary's example is birthing God into the world among the things of the everyday. Work, 
school, cooking and eating, homework, taking kids places, or if you are younger, going places, uh, play, rest, the day-to-day, the quotidian, the sacred mundane. How are you faithful in your everyday? Because that's where God is. You want to know where God shows up? God doesn't show up in temples or palaces or crowns or fancy spices or power. God shows up in the everyday, the sacred mundane, the things of life. Jennifer Powell McNutt says, each one of us, both male and female, are called to live in Christ and he in us. We are all expected to carry Christ as the core of our being, like Mary carried Christ in her womb and to labor with him and for him. Mary's example to us, Mary's way of following Jesus is to birth God. How are we doing that? I'm aware that this concept of childbearing and birth is unfamiliar to some of us and acutely familiar to others of us and very painful for yet more of us. As I hear you, and I want all of those feelings together in this space and hopefully still this image can connect because birthing is more than just having children. It's creating. It's bringing life into dead spaces. It's telling each other stories that shape and define us. It's breathing life into dead and hopeless spaces. In her book, Theology of the Womb, Christy Bauman says there's something holy, mm, come on slide, there's something holy about the Spirit of God breathing life back into places of hopelessness and dried up bones. Rebirthing is creating, telling new stories that breathe life. Rebirthing, telling these life-bearing, life-breathing and life-giving stories, that's what it is to follow Jesus. That's what it is to birth God into the world. It's not about knowing the right things to believe. Rather, it's having these stories deep in your bones and in your bodies, carrying them with you and releasing them into the world. Birthing God into the world is to be people of restoration, reconciliation, hope, and life. So what story is in you? You are an image bearer of God, a sacred creation. Christy Bauman talks about image bearing as singing your own song, knowing yourself. You are a beautiful creation that bears God's image and is very good. So what story is in you? Where is God being born in your life, growing alongside you and with you so that you can bear God into the world? That's the question I'm gonna leave with you today. Just one question, one thing to ponder. Worship team and the prayer team can come back to your spots. Uh, kind of screwed over here so the worship team can do their thing. Um, the question will be on the screen and the team will play for a couple minutes to offer you some space to reflect and interact and then they'll lead us in one more song. And so, what story is in you? What song are you singing? What are you carrying in you that brings life and goodness and God into the world? Will you do the work of carrying that song and that story, letting it be birthed into the world, breaking your body and yourself apart and co-creating with God and suffering and hope, bearing the marks of the good work that you are doing, bringing God into the world? What story is in you? Let's pray. God, help us to see your mark in ourselves and in each other. Help us to stop hiding and acting out of our woundedness. Help us to listen to you and to listen to what you are doing deep within us. Help us to believe that you are in this world, 
Help us to see you, to hear your voice and your call and your invitation to join in with what you're doing. Help us to hear the story that's within us. We pray this in your name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.